Hello and welcome to another magical episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we revisit the classic books of our adolescence to see if they still keep us spellbound, or instead to discover the charm has faded. On alternate episodes, we read contemporary young adult books that are fresher and sometimes fouler. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the lovely Luna Tick, Patrick Moon. Hi, where, where, what year is it? <laughs> <laughs> the bedazzling Bree. Hello. And the master of the dark arts, Keith Rowe. Hello. This episode, we opt to just do something fun and review another Harry Potter book. After all, we all had so much fun last time. It's book two of the Juggernaut series, The Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling. Before we get into the wacky wizarding adventures of our favourite trio... In what is generally considered the shit one of the series. <laughs> Are you quoting uh, me? A warning. <laughs> yes. Extendus hiatus. We're back and we're itching to talk about... Uh, actually, I've forgotten what book we're supposed to be discussing because we selected it six entire months ago. If you've also been hit with the old Obliviate, let me look through my notes and... Uh, yeah, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, we're going to spoil it, guys, but seriously, it came out in 1998, so it's really your own fault if you press on without having read it as yet. We've certainly given you enough time since the last episode. Here we are. Thank you, Patrick. Without further fizzjiggery, let's hear a sample of page one, as read by our very own Old Cuss Bumblesnore. Not for the first time an argument had broken out. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> I don't think Dumbledore is meant to be the narrator of the series. <laughs> if, if that's what you're angling for. Oh, I've been watching it all wrong. <laughs> oh no, maybe that was more a Voldemort than a Dumbledore. Oh, it was a bit. I think I was going for the crustier of the Dumbledores. The one that passed, I think. Oh, you can't call someone crusty after they're dearly departed. <laughs> Listen, if he was so crusty he didn't finish the series, he was definitely crusty. Oh, no. Chapter 1, The Worst Birthday Not for the first time, an argument had broken out over breakfast at number 4, Privet Drive. Mr Vernon Dursley had been woken in the early hours of the morning by a loud hooting noise from his nephew Harry's room. Third time this week! He roared across the table. If you can't control that owl, it'll have to go. Harry tried, yet again, to explain. She's bored, he said. She's used to flying around outside. If I could just let her out at night... Do I look stupid? snarled Uncle Vernon, a bit of fried egg dangling from his bushy moustache. I know what'll happen if that owl's let out. He exchanged dark looks with his wife, Petunia. Harry tried to argue back, but his words were drowned by a long, loud belch from the Dursley's son, Dudley. 
I want more bacon. There's more in the frying pan, sweetums," said Aunt Petunia, turning misty eyes on her massive son. "We must feed you up while we've got the chance. I don't like the sound of that school food." "Nonsense, Petunia! I never went hungry when I was at Smeltings," said Uncle Vernon heartily. "Dudley gets enough, don't you?" Dudley, who was so large his bottom drooped over either side of the kitchen chair, grinned and turned to Harry. "Pass the frying pan." "You've forgotten the magic word," said Harry irritably. The effect of this simple sentence on the rest of the family was incredible. Dudley gasped and fell off his chair with a crash that shook the whole kitchen. Mrs. Dursley gave a small scream and clapped her hands to her mouth. Mr. Dursley jumped to his feet, veins throbbing in his temples. "I meant please," said Harry quickly. "I didn't mean what have I told you?" thundered his uncle, spraying spit over the table. "About saying the M word in our house." Shall I leave it there? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could beat the level of emotion that you displayed in the last couple of seconds. There, certainly you've peaked. Yeah, very spirited. That was more dramatic than the movie. <laughs> the Shakespearean production. Uh. That would be quite good, wouldn't it? Chamber of Secrets in the Park. You know how they do Shakespeare in the Park. What about Chamber of Secrets in the style of Shakespeare in the Park? Ooh. In the round. Ooh. Mm. In the something else. <laughs> quick, quick copyright. <laughs> Patrick, I mean, it's been some months since you've read that. It has. It's all flooding back now, exactly how you remember reading it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Even more vibrant, if that's possible, than when I read it. <laughs> How did it strike you? I liked it. I think I preface everything that I say with I liked it. So it's good to see that I'm right back to where we <laughs> left off with this, the seeking dumbness <laughs> mannerisms. But I did like it. I did go into it thinking that this was the shit one, as you put it, so eloquently. <laughs> and so maybe my expectations were lower and my guard was down. But I feel like it's actually a pretty good continuation of the harry potter saga overall and it it does pick off pretty well from the tone of the first book so i'm invested at this point i like it what about the next person that would be me brie i tend to agree it's shocking that it's a bit like groupthink the first person (laughs) says i like it the next person goes yeah sure there's a lot of pressure because our adoring public takes my opinion and runs with it (laughs) It's got a little hook in there for me with the magic and the anger and the, well, if he hasn't been doing magic, what has he been doing all summer? So for me, it conjures up those ideas. It's cool that the magic is just out there at this point for the Dursleys. It's like, this is the open secret of the household. I guess this has maybe become a little bit more commonplace in the media that we've consumed in the, in the post-Potter world, but it's kind of a, it's a very different hero story, mm. a hero's journey kind of thing, you know, magic just being a, a breakfast table taboo. Mm. You're right. I mean, there are so many books that have tried to capture that since, but... There really wasn't anything else before this, and I presume that one of us will talk along these lines later on. So, Keith, what did you think of page one? Before I get into that, just a quick rip to poor old Vernon Dursley, who's passed. I just thought of that when you were reading it with such animation, Laurie. He was the perfect actor to play that role. When did he pass away, and what was his name (laughs) rather than Vernon Dursley? Uh, You're coming to the wrong person for information. Sometime (laughs) last year, I believe. 
I like it that you come to the table with some pretense <laughs> of being informed. It's a half effect. Completely pull the plug. It's a very thin veneer. It's a half effect. It is a half effect. I mean, in America, it would be a full fact. <laughs> it just took the hint of a question for that veneer to be revealed as extremely thin. So, yeah, normally I keep my page one ad lib so that I can capture my in-the-moment feelings, but being such a special episode... I prepared my thoughts for this one. So grab yourself a hot cup of tea and slither in. At this point, it's impossible for me to completely isolate my feelings on just the opening pages versus the whole property, but I'll do my best. We're effectively dropped right back into the frustrating mundanity of Harry's life with the Dursleys. If I was reading it cold, it might be slightly frustrating, something being presented as familiar from the very beginning, but that's a really mild criticism because it's quite obvious that this opening is actually intended to help you empathise with Harry's predicament, and I think it does that pretty well. It calls to mind the stark contrast between this world and that of Hogwarts, even though, as Pat and Bree were just talking about then, magic is, in the forethoughts of the Dursleys, it's being repressed for Harry. All the links back to Hogwarts are effectively closed off If we were to read on there, we would get an endearing checklist of the Hogwarts familiarity, of the teachers, the surroundings of Quidditch, and you get to feel the exasperation that Harry's experienced, having all of that fresh and exciting wonder trapped away in a box, because that's exactly what the Dursleys have done, lock up everything that is Hogwarts. And particularly cruel is the way that Hedwig has been locked in her cage. This, combined with what we later learn is the meddling of Dobby, prevents Harry from having any conduit to the wizarding world. This connection for us as the reader back to the muggle world is essential for Harry, and it was essential for me as a reader. It serves as a grounding point to get us back into the mindset of Harry before returning us to Hogwarts. So the biggest problem for me is that I can't separate the opening of the book from the body of work that it belongs to, and that's obviously not actually a problem at all. So I think she nailed it. Thanks, Keith. I'm just going to scribble out my first half of the synopsis. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Keith, would you say that you're a purveyor of the freshest news in the world? Would that be a way that you would describe yourself, potentially? Who uses the word purveyor to describe themselves? (laughs) The fresh news steaming hot from the oven, breaking potential recruit for for TMZ (laughs) and their reporting division. All right. How long ago did he die? He died in 2013. Did he really? (laughs) (laughs) Crusty bastard. No way. (laughs) Six years ago. Is it really? (laughs) What year are we in? It's only 2015 or something. Oh, that's great. It's funny though, because Bree's mum, in preparation for seeing The Cursed Child, for the first time, she hasn't read the books, but for the first time she binge-watched the movies, (laughs) and she did comment that it was interesting and a little bit sad to see all these actors who have since passed. Hmm. Yes, Uncle Vernon is not the least of them, I guess. And he's not the one she talked about. (laughs) Yes, she did. She spoke about Vernon and Snape. Oh, yeah, Snape is sad. I was very sad when Alan Rickman passed away. Mm. He was such an incredible actor in so many things that I identify so clearly with my childhood, like Harry Potter obviously being a big one, but even Love Actually is such a huge part of my younger years. Dogma. I thought you were going to go with Die Hard, but I should have known better with you, Patrick. (laughs) I was a mere baby when Die Hard was in cinemas. 
they always just played the the second Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance and whatever on TV. I think the first Die Hard is actually pretty underrepresented. Mm. Maybe not the avenue we were expecting to go down in a Harry Potter podcast <laughs> about the respective airtime of Die Hard movies. Or obituaries for people who have died more than five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, someone asked me what I thought about Page One. Yeah, Laurie, what did you think of Page One? Uh, like, I enjoyed it because Uncle Vernon is the character that you're meant to love to hate, and certainly trying to pray the magic away is is a good vehicle for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess apart from that, I only wish to add that I remember this being quite jarring when I first read the book. Somehow... I remember that I'd forgotten between book one and starting book two that Harry had actually headed off, quote-unquote, home. I assumed when I picked up book two for some reason that he'd somehow become a self-empowered, self-determining entity. And, of course, he hasn't. Emancipated from his evil extended family. Yeah, he's he's still just some poor kid. And I think the balance of humour and rage from the reader was spot on from JK. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. He does have a bedroom now. He's upgraded in a way. Mm. He's still imprisoned. So I'll spoil the rest of it for you, yeah? Yes, please do. So it has been a long, hot, miserable summer at the Dursleys. Harry's feeling lonely. He thought he'd made friends, but nary a letter has been received at the Dursley household over the summer. Not only that, his wand and his books have been banished, and he's made to stay in his room pretending he doesn't exist. His uncle is attempting to close a very important business deal and, of course, as he trudges back to his room, he finds a creature on his bed waiting. Enter, it's already been spoiled for you, Dobby the house elf, who is determined to prevent our hero from returning to Hogwarts by any means possible, but he's keeping his reasons close to his chest. Harry ends up being rescued, of course, by three Weasleys in a flying blue car. The book goes from one calamity to the next at a rip-snorting pace. There's Harry being knocked out by a bludger. There's Harry, Ron and Hermione turning themselves into Crabgoyle and Malfoy. There's Hagrid being arrested. There's Forks, the phoenix that we're introduced to. There's a mystery at the school as students, a ghost and a cat are all found petrified or, in muggle terms, immobile. The mystery deepens as writing is seen on the wall about the heir of Slytherin and it is linked to a 50-year-old riddle. Harry believes he can hear whispering around the castle. We are diverted and intrigued by new characters being introduced, such as the self-absorbed and self-aggrandising Defence Against the Dark Arts teacher, Gilderoy Lockhart. We come to see Ginny Weasley as she navigates her way through Year One, mooning after Harry, and we giggle at Ron's fear of spiders. We meet a new ghost, one of my own personal favourite characters, Moaning Myrtle, who haunts a bathroom. But of course, the heroes of the tale prevail. They unravel the mystery and confront a mythical beast that has lain dormant beneath the school for 50 years, banishing it with its own tooth. Anyone who doesn't have petrification as part of their daily lexicon has not played enough (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons in the... (laughs) In my opinion. Mm. I was like, yeah, I was petrified way back in Baldur's Gate one day, so like... (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because I actually hand-wrote it, and I wrote it with a capital P, so... (laughs) If you haven't been wringing your hands over the difficulty of killing a beholder through your your primary school years, (laughs) then you haven't really lived. And again, I uh, just realised that I left out a very important sentence... 
which is, and they find an old diary that writes back to you. So there you go. <laughs> Major plot point. <laughs> we'll just edit that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, terrific. Thanks, Bree. Seeing as we had to use carbon dating to determine how long it was since we all read the book preparing for this episode, we all no doubt needed that as much as the audience. Patrick, back to the well, huh? Throbbing fan choice for our 50th episode? Or secretly don't know how to read and only pick books that have movies or TV shows? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a bit of both. Seriously, though, I was thinking about it. 50 Reasons Why, Goodnight Mr. Tom, A Monster Calls, 13 Reasons Why, Perks of Being a Wallflower, Tomorrow When the War Began. Need I go on to less convenient examples? Case closed. Can you read? You said, I think, 50 Reasons Why and 13 Reasons Why. I don't remember 50 Reasons Why, but... oh. Um, <laughs> I don't know which one's which. 13 reasons why? I see a lot of stuff popping up in pop culture, and I think I really want to get in on that, and I want to feel like I'm a young, hip kid and can appreciate the things that young, hip kids are appreciating in modern life. And I feel like this was part of the mission statement of the podcast, whereas you seem to appreciate throwing back to books that nobody has ever read in the history of writing. Are you aiming that at me? Oh, bro. (laughs) No, I thought you were going to talk to me about my Anne of Green Gables fetish. No, obviously Anne of Green Gables has a a cult following would be putting it mildly probably, but... uh, I mean, I'm not convinced that Laurie didn't write Brog himself under a pseudonym. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. If I had, I would have made it into a graphic novel by now. Yes. So uh, anyway, you're welcome that I keep bringing you back to these huge cultural touchstones, whether they be old or new. And I was actually going to pick a different book at this point, but about seven or eight years ago, when we were deciding on what we do for this episode, we had a conversation about let's mark a, a milestone episode with a milestone text. So here we are back at the Harry Potter well. And I don't know that the Chamber of Secrets is necessarily a milestone <laughs> text in and of itself. but Should have gone with the fourth one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe in an ideal world, we would have done another one of the, the Harry Potter books. But I think it's good to work through sequentially and just get a, a feel for the, the Potterverse again. And going in order is kind of interesting, too, because it's it's how we all did it back in the day, consuming each of these things as they came out. And it's like a, I, I haven't reread them. It's I've only, I've only ever read the books once. And so this is a new experience for me. And I cop a lot of flack for that in my, my home life for not being familiar enough with the books and only having read them once. So this is, this is good. This is a necessary thing for me. <laughs> This book, I don't think I was expecting to like it as much as I actually ended up enjoying it. Like I said during the page one bit, I came into this with the expectation like, okay, we have to do the bad Potter book. Probably the one that is the the weakest link or the one that people tend not to enjoy as much. And somehow over the years since I actually read the book, I'd convinced myself that that meant that this is actually a capital B bad book. And it's definitely not a bad book. It's actually a great book. I've, I found it really entertaining. I, it was kind of refreshing in a way to hark back to this period of Harry Potter that is actually still more whimsical than where Harry Potter actually ends up because it gets pretty intense. It gets pretty dark. And I associate Harry Potter a lot more now with the latter films 
and the latter books where we're in this almost like fascist state of dark wizarding taking over and Voldemort in power and Hogwarts under siege and people dying and spoilers grief and woe and <laughs> I mean people dying is not a spoiler people die <laughs> so yeah this this was refreshing in a way it's like oh this is this is back to the roots of Harry Potter not the original roots but very close to it I think it has a lot more in common tone wise with the first book than it does with a lot of the later ones and I enjoyed that a lot Nice to see Dobby popping up. Dobby is a fan favourite and a personal favourite. He was a little bit annoying, though. A little bit frustrating at times. I forgot what a difficult prat he was in. Obviously well-intentioned in trying to keep Harry from going back to school. But, my God, he, he could have been a little bit more straightforward about it, don't you think? Totally. totally. <laughs> he does evolve, <laughs> nope. and that's part of his journey. He's got to have his own character development. So you forgive it for that later on in book, what, five, six? I lose track. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> wherever it is. So ultimately, those parts are what made it fresh and interesting and enjoyable for me. And maybe also slightly the, the downfall as well, that some of the, the really deep extended lore is not quite as deep and extended in this book as it is in some of the others. And that this book is not the hefty tome that some of the others become. But all of the charm of JK's writing is still there. All of the, the novelty of the universe is still there. And ultimately, like, a pretty worthy foe, a pretty good kind of monster story, ultimately. Yeah, I was into it. I liked it much more than I expected. This is certainly not the bad Harry Potter. This is part of the universe. If it's not a, a massive high point, then it's certainly not a low point either. What about you, Brie? Or Keith. Are we going in a different order? <laughs> or Laurie. Or Laurie. I don't <laughs> why are we going? Laurie. That was your why you chose it. Oh, this is my chose it. Ugh. You did talk about why you chose it. I thought you just evolved it. I did talk about why I chose it. I segued into a review as yeah, well. Yeah, it was good. What did you think of it, Laurie? I was struggling to understand why some people didn't like this book as much as the rest of the series when reading through. It had been a while since I'd read Chamber of Secrets and I quite enjoyed the ride. I did do a bit of reading around the attitude towards Chamber of Secrets and some readers have pointed out the plot similarities between Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. I won't list the points here, but, and I don't know if it was intentional. I'll do that later. Oh, good man. <laughs> All of Harry Potter does that a little bit. For at least the first few books, there's this kind of trope with the, the dark arts teachers being useless, aka not real teachers, and there's a hidden villain in the chambers of Hogwarts. And I mean, I, I haven't seen this list of similarities, but surely there's a kind of intention there in the way that she went about this in the early books. Yeah, I think we'll let Keith get into it in more detail. Sounds like he's got a list, so... He's got some meat. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but it seemed to be a bit like the second album from your favourite band versus the third or fourth album. The second album is often a mirror image of the first, inoffensive and familiar for fans, before the studio lets the artists start cracking the mould a little bit. I liked the mystery and the increasing dread and lockdown of the students. This theme, which is common throughout the series, of the spreading darkness that affects at first the school and in subsequent books, The Wizarding World in general, is very well done. I mean, sure, it got a little brutal at the Hallows' End, 
But I like that the swelling tension lies in close step with Voldemort's return to power and the factional, fearful mistrust that grows with it. There's something stronger than echoes of the Reich in Germany, and it's easy to read the adventure, but I also like that JK has woven something more compelling underneath all of that. I was watching all of the movies again recently, and I, I said, because it's been so long since I've seen them too, and watching them, I was like, it is remarkable how Nazi-esque or how German Reich the imagery is, mm. and so many of the the plot lines and things. It's a it's a real clear apparent parallel that I don't think was ever really talked about in school or or anything like that. It seemed to largely go under the radar, and I don't know why necessarily. The magic. Yeah. It is interesting. I've got some notes on that as well around using mudblood and the racism and challenging norms like slavery with house elves and things, although I'm not sure that they actually mm. ever get to that depth with the house elves. But they certainly do in a kid's context and that bullying and the feeling isolated, it really captures a lot of those topics, introduces them in, in a neat package. Mm. Do you think any of the books that we have read more recently would get away with evoking these kinds of themes? Or do you think that people would be more critical of it? I see it everywhere. I feel like using the rise of the Reich as an underlying theme, it seems to happen more often than it doesn't. <laughs> Since 1998, though. Mm. Plenty of it. I say that and I'm regularly irritated by it because I wish authors would... Be a little bit creative? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But now that I've said that, I can't think of a single example. But <laughs> It was terrible how Marcus Zusak abused it in The Book Thief. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real subtext of The Book Thief. Yeah, you might not have noticed it on first reading. But... <laughs> if I had more time, I'd make a list for you. But uh, yeah, I can't think of any right now. But I think it is very common. You are to literary analysis what Keith is to history. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember it being talked about or I, I don't even really think I thought about it when I was first reading the books through, but certainly when you view the series as a whole and you see the, the lighter beginnings yeah. and see the increasingly dark and mistrustful kind of world that gets set up over the books, then, yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Mm. Why didn't our educators jump onto these books in, in history or English? It was never really spoken about for me. Harry Potter was just something popular that kids read outside of school while school was going on. And it, it, it... Well, from my perspective, it's because Harry Potter was released the year that I left school. <laughs> just, just I was saying. just thinking that same thing. We'd all left. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a kind of uh, invisible boundary between fantasy and what you would call literature in a sense until it reaches an age where it can be considered a classic. Mm. I wonder if Harry Potter's there yet. Is Harry Potter on the syllabus? Because it should be, really, in my opinion. It's a question for the Twittersphere. I don't engage with the Twittersphere. <laughs> Sorry, Laurie. No problems. The only thing that stood out as a minor irritation was the disempowerment of both Hermione and Ginny. Hermione, I suppose, is the informed, educated solution to most problems in the series, and perhaps having her temporarily impaired is a way to induce a bit more physical caution in her character and force the boys to sort out their own problems, highlighting the differences in their capabilities. Perhaps it's irrational, but I was a touch put off by both her and Ginny being the ones that needed saving in this book. Have you read a fantasy book before? No. <laughs> And therein lies the problem, Patrick. <laughs> I mean, this is 
successful female author in a fairly contemporary setting. Anyway, it was just a minor irritation. Well, J.K. Rowling has at various points been accused of being less than progressive in, in various ways. But really? I, I think maybe that's a little bit unfair, but yeah. Mm. They didn't really have to rescue Hermione from memory. I mean, she became Hermione, but there was no rescue what? that took place there, was there? Yeah, she got petrified. Oh, they didn't rescue her, though. No, so they had to figure out the mystery in order to save the damsel who had been harmed. Well, there was others petrified as well. The little photographer dude. I think Ginny you can excuse because she was younger as well. Barely. So younger women are not able to fend for themselves. (laughs) I didn't say women. (laughs) I feel I'm being trapped here. (laughs) Harry, Ron and Hermione were fighting Voldemort in their first year at Hogwarts. I guess I just don't agree that Hermione had to be protected. Hmm. She was the one kind of leading them in many respects. Well, she was sidelined though, wasn't she? She was kind of off the roster for a significant chunk of time. Yeah, definitely, yeah. But not in a damsel in distress sort of way, I didn't feel. She was out there exploring and had the nous to not look directly and rather look in the reflection, which saved her from being not just petrified. Fair enough. Hmm. I'm neither here nor there on the deus ex machina of Fawkes and the sword gargling hat. (laughs) (laughs) Bumbledoof literally swooping in to save the day is at once a bit cliched, but also necessary in establishing the kind of factional trust that Harry must learn to both ask for and rely on in subsequent books. So I think they neutralise each other. And he already has a track record for putting kids' lives in danger. (laughs) True. He established that very early in the piece. Keith, for you, was it a muggle struggle or whiz popping? (laughs) It's definitely whiz popping. That sounds BFG-esque. We've all spoken about how this book is widely considered to be the weakest in this series, and I can understand in some ways why that might be a commonly held perception. But it doesn't mean this isn't a fantastic book. And it doesn't mean that I agree with that sentiment. At times, it did seem to kind of meander through the school year. That's the criticism that Laurie talked about, where it closely follows the plot lines of the first book with the Forbidden Forest, when you reduce it down to like a dot point sort of list. Dumbledore leaving Hogwarts, a secret area, a final showdown where Harry's isolated from Hermione and Ron. Those are all things that happened in both books, but it never really, to me, felt like a rehash whilst I was reading it. And any fantasy book at all, really, if we're going to talk reducing down to dot points, you would be able to, depending on the level of reduction that you go to, probably chart a similar trajectory for 95% of the books ever written in this genre. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. And obviously here it's executed very well because it's JK Rowling. Totally. Yeah, it didn't feel like a rehash to me. It was partly because of the development of the characters, even though it's only a year since the first book. It's not just the Trinity, as Laurie once referred to them, it's the myriad supporting characters. The stakes, they've been elevated. The world is revealing itself. And although Pat talked about the tone in the earlier books versus the later ones, which can sometimes make something feel less meaningful when the tone is lighter but it's part of the fabric of the whole story the way the kids grow up when the story grows with them so i actually really enjoyed that aspect of it Mm. there's a number of components in particular that i enjoyed during my read the way that harry questioned himself his identity in house gryffindor and his history because the idea of identity is ever present throughout the whole book and the whole series and it's here in our core characters where we see it most but then we have people like gilderoy lockhart Tom Riddle, so many more already in this book that are such there's such depth to their characters. Depth you wouldn't expect in a book targeted at the age this was initially. 
But I do have to level some personal criticisms at the book. Personal criticisms? <laughs> yes, I was very distraught at this one. To me, Nearly Headless Nick was very poorly executed. Oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10, Keith. 10 yeah. out of 10. <laughs> I can't take credit for that one. I've seen that a few times over the years. Uh, the most recent place I saw it was on Reddit. So whoever came up with that one, it's beautiful. Classic. In our previous episode on the Philosopher's Stone, I mentioned my concerns with the scoring system employed in the game of Quidditch. And I recently saw that Harry Potter himself, under the guise of Daniel Radcliffe, has also called out the same issue. What is the issue with the scoring? Effectively that if you capture the golden snitch, you're going to win the game. That's essentially the aim, isn't it? To capture the, the snitch and capture it relatively early. But don't they say that there have been games that have gone for, like, yonks? Yeah, three months, I think, is the lengthiest game. If you've gone for three months, you're not going to win the game by a snitch alone. You're going to have to have put a few biscuits in the basket. I suppose, but I can't imagine the intensity has kept up over that three-month period. <laughs> Presumably not. <laughs> There's a bunch of skeletons out there and a golden snitch hanging around. <laughs> but it was in an episode of QI, which was hosted by the voice of the Harry Potter series, Stephen Fry, and he basically calls out the same criticism of the game. So I felt vindicated wholly when I saw that. It's interesting. I was speaking with a colleague at work whose daughter is on the UCLA Quidditch team and they were just off to the finals recently. And I think in the RL version of Quidditch, the Golden Snitch is only worth three points or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. Mm. So how does it fly around? The quaffles are worth ten or something, right? Is that... Or is it based on the rings that you put them in? The rings. I really don't know. It's the rings, yeah. I haven't engaged to that level. (laughs) I I mean, I I don't know why not. I'm assuming that the (laughs) the snitch is probably like a spray-painted ping-pong ball or something anyway, so it's probably not that hard to catch. Mm. No, it's a... I thought the snitch was a person. A person in yellow pants. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. (laughs) That has a little net behind them. must be attached to their belt or something. And I think you have to reach in and, and snatch it off them. They're supposed to continually face away from the two seekers. And my colleague was very upset because her daughter lost a match with a seemingly inexperienced seeker that was just running away from somebody, like with their back to them. An inexperienced snitch or... Yes, inexperienced snitch that was just running away instead of putting their front to the two seekers. Right. So the person just caught up to them and snatched the snitch from their back pocket. That sounds really terrible. It was very frustrating (laughs) for her, apparently. It sounds like a heady mix of Oztag and netball and, you know, God knows what, maybe like mixed martial arts or something. I mean, Quidditch is a pretty violent sport overall. Yep. Keith, you're being slightly dodgy there, though, right? Snatching snitches. Well, (laughs) snitch snatching. Some of the players do have to sit astride sticks, though, and run with them between their legs. It's very odd. (laughs) They must lose control of the game quite often. There must be so much happening in all quarters and what kind of field are they playing on the dimensions and it's just boggling as a sport. It's time to form a team, guys. (laughs) Let's get the inside story. Brooms down. Before I get onto the scoring system of real-life Quidditch, I have to say I find it mildly amusing that JK is somewhat tormented by Quidditch. There's several quotes from her on this topic. To be honest with you, Quidditch matches have been the bane of my life in the Harry Potter books. They are necessary in that people expect Harry to play Quidditch, but there is a limit to how many ways you can have them play Quidditch together and for something new to happen. 
My favourites, though, and I think these speak to her feelings on the topic, come from Twitter. In 2017, someone tweeted, You're trapped in an elevator with one other person. What is the worst way he can start a conversation? To which she replied, Got a bone to pick with you? Why is the snitch worth 150 points? Side that catches it always wins. Makes no sense. And on and on forever. As is her way, she refuses to cede any ground on the issue, despite the mounting evidence, and so in 2018, once more on Twitter, she provided a particularly poetic reasoning for the scoring in Quidditch. It makes total sense. There's glamour in chasing an elusive lucky break, but teamwork and persistence can still win the day. Everyone's vulnerable to blows of fate and obstructive people, and success means rising above them. Quidditch is the human condition. You're welcome. And by poetic, I mean richly imaginative, but removed from reality. Why else would the Golden Snitch be worth only 30 points in the real-life version of the sport, when goals remain 10 points apiece? Okay, sure, the magic is at least partially lost in the real-life iteration, when the Snitch is a tennis ball in a long sock, banging away on someone's buttocks as they try desperately to avoid their buttock ball being snatched. But not for any real benefit, except to avoid bringing an end to a game where people fly around on imaginary broomsticks. Actually, I lie. The stick isn't imaginary, just the ability to fly is. The snitch themselves only enters the game after 18 minutes of chaser-scoring gameplay, and there are very specific rules about when and how a seeker can actually attempt to capture the snitch. The current rulebook is 185 pages long. I made the mistake of falling down a bit of a rabbit hole into the real-life world of Quidditch through several YouTube streams of games. It actually looks like parts of the game might be quite fun to play, but as a spectator sport, it was engrossing only in a slightly tragic sort of way. There was so much happening in individual scrimmages around the field, or with people tapping goals, hurling volleyballs, falling down, all whilst waddling with that intentionally debilitating broomstick between chafing thighs. There were frequent breaks in play, while some perceived infraction was debated. In essence, it was a bit like a story without a clear plot. It seems that this is a bit of a trendy counter-sport in that if people actually wanted to play competitive team sports, there are a lot of objectively better frameworks to operate under. But at the end of the day, anything that has people out and secreting endorphins and bonding with others in a positive way is a good thing. So fetch me my stick and whatever you put on your thighs to stop them chafing. Brooms up! Bree, we haven't properly heard what you think. I was kind of ticking off all of the things that I had to say as you went through. So not just you, all three of you. So I'll try and make it snappy. I was more interested in how the newness comes in because we've talked about how the the format gets reused and I really liked how they brought in the new characters. I thought Gilderoy Lockhart was vapid and fun. I really liked the introduction of Moaning Myrtle and her mysterious history. And they also, as you alluded to and spoke about, Keith, they develop the existing characters. You find out a little bit more about Ron and his background and Hagrid's history and even Voldemort's history. You're given an appreciation for who and what he was as a, as a boy. She really gets the ball rolling with the world building in this one, yeah. doesn't she? I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of world building in the first novel, but I feel in this one she's starting to say, okay, there's something bigger here than one book about a boy wizard. That This, this world is going to have to expand a little bit mm. and the moving pieces are going to have to start moving at this point. Mm. As you spoke about earlier, Pat, I like that they don't shy away from the characters getting hurt. 
I'm pausing because I'm waiting for you all to remind me of how much I hated the people getting beaten with sticks comments. (laughs) (laughs) So I I do like that, that they are starting to build that world and show that things aren't always happy and... There are some realistic stakes. Yeah, there are some realistic things, but there is darkness and light and there's there are shades of grey in between as well. So I really liked that. Yeah, I think whilst it, yeah, it does really expand on the world a lot, it also lays the ground for the overarching story. A lot of it's put in place mm. here in the Chamber of Secrets. Mm. Having said that, when my mum was wanting to watch all of the movies back to back to prepare her for the play, I said, you can skip number two, but that is the only one you can skip. And I still stand by that. There is so much that happens. I wouldn't do that, though. I feel it's fairly brief, Mm. comparatively. Mm. It's not split into two movies. I think it does a disservice to skip it entirely. She's going on Thursday. She started watching them on Saturday. Is this her first exposure to Harry Potter? She knows of and about Harry Potter. I mean, everyone knows of Harry Potter. She's done no reading. She's never read the books or watched the movies or anything? nothing. Nothing. And she signed up for the play. And she has me as a daughter. Like, it is the ultimate bad manners to not take some vague interest. The ultimate slap in the face for you. (laughs) I better remind her not to listen to this episode. I'm seeing that Harry Potter thing that you really like, (laughs) Brie. And interestingly, she's not that dottery. She's a wonderful, hip-ass <laughs> 70-year-old. not dottery at all. <laughs> she can listen from that point on. Apologies to Bree's mum. That was a pretty dottery voice, implying that she would refer to Harry as Parry Hot. I was maybe unkind <laughs> on my part. She is a theatre-goer, though, and when we raved at length about how amazing the play was... Shh, keep the secrets. I will. She did display some interest, I think, purely from a theatre point of mm. view, and she's going with your sister. Yes. So I'll be keen to hear how she mm. interprets it, having not had that history with Exposure. the works. Yeah. Mm. If anybody is going to see the play, if you buy the program, it has a great synopsis of every book, like a fairly succinct synopsis of each, and pulls out all the points that are really important for watching the play. Mm. The other thing that I did, because I was trying to think about other sequels to good books to have a little bit of a comparison in my mind. So I've got a list here that I just thought I'd see if you've read or either the first book or the second. Has anybody read Ghost Set a Watchman? No. No, but this is a, a weird situation though, isn't it? Because wasn't Ghost Set a Watchman meant to be an early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird mm. and has, has kind of been spun out and rewritten and rejigged and then somebody has seen an opportunity to make a buck from it down the track? I've downloaded it. I've bought it. It's on my e-reader. I have not read it, so I don't know what that says. Okay. Alice Through the Looking Glass. I think I've read that, but like years and years and years and years ago. Forgettable, right? I mean, I've forgotten it entirely. (laughs) Charlie and the Glass Elevator. Yeah, I've read that one. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) The Vermicious Canids. Yeah, they're awesome. (laughs) Although, I don't know if I've been part of this story on the podcast, but as I was reading it to my son, he was incredibly quiet in this one section where I was going through the Vermicious Canids and how they can kill someone from the other side of the room. And I wondered why he's (laughs) gone so quiet. He must have fallen asleep. And as I looked down at him, I could see a tear rolling down his face. Oh. <laughs> oh no! And he looked up in earnest and said, "Dad, I don't want to read any more Roldal." Oh, oh no, <laughs> Keith! That statement must have gone direct to your heart as Roldal's biggest living fan. It truly did. Just give him George's marvelous medicine again. Yeah, we went back to James and the Giant Peach after a few days of like a bit of a let it wash from his mind <laughs> therapy session. <laughs> It's like me and my Stephen King experience. Prince Caspian. 
Caspian was good. We might get there one day. It was the second book, but it was fourth in the chronology. Mm. Uh, Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Yeah, yeah. Good. for sure. Good. All of them are good. Anne of Avonlea. Oh, no. Also very good, I assure you all. <laughs> Catching Fire. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the second was all right. I, I've yeah. read that. And the only other one I've picked up is Little Men. Ooh. <laughs> Little Men. <laughs> no, and in it, Joe no. marries some dude called Professor Bear, who's a headmaster of a boarding school. So there you go. Spoiler. Whoops. I already know too much. You didn't say Ranger's Apprentice number 11, Brie. No, I didn't. I said the second in the series, Laurie, was the was the theme of this particular bit. Ah, oh, right, right. But I also pulled out a really interesting quote from another fantasy author, somebody by the name of Sean and Maguire, who says, no matter how good it is, it will lack that brilliant newness. It will be following a familiar channel. And that's okay in this because it does enough. Yeah, it definitely does do it well. And it was, I think it was in our last episode, difficult to remember at this point, but I talked a bit about second book syndrome I think I called it, and how it's difficult to avoid that lag in the middle. It feels like maybe you're biding time. And Laurie asked me for examples, and I was a little bit stymied at the time because I'd spent all this time thinking about the theoretical construct of second book syndrome and hadn't spent any time thinking about actual (laughs) real-world examples of it. But I think you've given a pretty good one there in Catching Fire, which to me felt like a little bit of a rehash of the Hunger Games, and you're not quite at the point where you're ready to overturn the New World Order or anything, but you're not really just learning about the Hunger Games yet either. So what do you do? I guess you kind of just do the same thing again, maybe? Send it back out there again, yeah. It drags. It's neither here nor there. And that's something that the Chamber of Secrets, for me at least, doesn't do. It doesn't drag. It doesn't feel like, oh yeah, here's the boy wizard again. Let's just do the same old again, even though it may hit some of the same plot beats, as you are mentioning, Keith. Most of that list, they do drag a little. And I agree with you about the Chamber of Secrets. That's why I sort of thought it was good to end on that quote. Keith. Yes. Do you have a game for us? I do have a game for us. And it's highly unoriginal. Good. These are the type of games that I I long to play. (laughs) Unlike the literature that I consume, I want my games to be unoriginal. It's following a familiar channel. (laughs) When I wrote this, it was hot on the heels of Pat's wildly successful dystopia game. From our last episode, which is just shortly after the death of Vernon Dursley. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, Vernon. (laughs) So this is definitely not a blatant ripoff of that. This respectful homage is who, in which you will all get a chance to guess the Harry Potter character that I'm referring to in a series of clues. Just like Pat's game, the clues will get progressively easier and the points you score progressively less. You're all playing. Feel free to buzz in with your name at any time Uh because that format has worked so well for us in the past. (laughs) Yes. If you answer incorrectly, you're locked out for the remainder of that round. If you continually flout the rules, I'll happily cast Expelliarmus on your ticket to the game. I feel like I should get some kind of concession given that I'm currently on the world's slowest internet connection. (laughs) So I'm probably about 15 seconds behind you all. I will consider that. (laughs) Laurie, it would be worth your while to not cast Arresto Momentum again against yourself partway through the quiz. Oh, the biggest choke of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Who has the knowledge to Ascendio above the rest of the class? Let's hominem revealio our champion. One, three points. Who am I? 
My first one. Before you go into it, Keith, is this Chamber of Secrets Limited or Potterverse? Potterverse. Okay. Let me just get the scoring pad at the ready. <clears throat> and we buzz in with our names? Yeah, you can buzz in with whatever you like, but names would make it quite easy. <laughs> Already? Yes, Bree, what was that? <laughs> no. So, for three points, who am I? My first wand belonged to my father, who could no longer use it on account of being tortured into insanity by a bunch of Death Eaters. I used that one... Uh, Buzz. Oh, I hope I'm right. Pat? Neville Longbottom? Pat! Pulls it out. Well done. Smashing it. Yes! That's a a healthy three points for Pat right off the bat. I'll go through the rest of this because I wrote it and now... I feel like I need to. <laughs> this is how I felt when I did mine and you, you got all of them on the first, the first clue. My second wand, which I bought in 1996 at Ollivander's, is made of cherry wood with unicorn hair measuring 13 inches. I continue to use that wand to this day as a herbology professor. Hmm. Two points. I was sorted into Gryffindor House in the same year as The Boy Who Lived. I'm a pure blood wizard and my parents were both members of the original Order of the Phoenix. In my early Hogwarts years, I had a reputation for being clumsy. And one point, in my first year, I unsuccessfully tried to stop Harry, Hermione and Ron from leaving the Gryffindor common room. It was one of the first signs of the great courage that I possess. And finally, according to the internet, I totally got hot. (laughs) (laughs) He did. That's not just the internet. That's (laughs) reality. Yep. Yep. Agree. Okay. So two for three points. Who am I? My wand is better than the rest because I, quite frankly, am the best. Just ask me. I'll tell you. Made from you, it has a phoenix feather core and measures 13 and a half inches. Ooh. Ah. No, I'm not going to buzz. For two points, the phoenix feather core is from a very well-known phoenix, one that I am not particularly fond of. I'm going to buzz again. Pat? And I'm going to say it's the Dark Lord Voldemort. It is the Dark Lord Voldemort. The final clue for one point. At this point, it would be prudent not to say my name. For three points, who am I? My wand is not particularly special, though you'll never hear me say that, nor will anyone around me. Made from hawthorn wood, it has a unicorn hair core measuring 10 inches long. For two points... You'll also never hear me say that someone once disarmed me and dispossessed me of my wand before using it themselves. Before that happened, I did use it myself to disarm someone of immense stature. Oof. For one point, it was Potter who disarmed me. Laurie. Laurie. Malfoy. Malfoy, it is. Which Malfoy? Draco. Yes. On the board... I mean, you've got to be very savvy with your wands to jump in on the three-pointer for the last couple. Yeah, I tried to get the character into it. Maybe I didn't do so well. I wasn't sure if the second one was going to be Potter or Voldemort because they both have the, the Phoenix Feather core, don't they? I, I think they do. Shut up, yeah, nerd! <laughs> <laughs> okay, for three points, who am I? A wand is only as powerful as its wielder is wise. So I suppose it follows that my wand is rather powerful. Laurie. Laurie? Hermione. Hermione it is. <laughs> oh. For two points it was, it has been used routinely to show off my class-topping ability, though I've also lent it to a friend or two in need when required, that being Harry and Neville. And for one point, who am I? Just guess. Many fans love me the best. I'm smart. I'm cute. I'm powerful to boot. <laughs> 
Is this like a, a bring it on sofa? <laughs> that was, yes. This is the last one. Who am I? Good golly. My wand is made of holly. Described as odd by Ollie, it's 11 inches, probably. What? <laughs> Laurie. <For> two... <laughs> Laurie. Ron. No, not Ron. Laurie. Damn it. Out, which unfortunately means we've got a winner, but let's play on. <laughs> not unfortunate who the winner is. For two points. I hate to throw things out unnecessarily, so I found a way to repair my wand when it was broken in the Battle of Hogwarts. This was despite being told by Garrick Ollivander that it was an impossibility. Hmm. I should know, but I don't know. For one point, my wand has a phoenix core using a tail feather from Forks. Oh, Harry Potter. Is Harry playing the game? Has anyone buzzed in? <laughs> I'm buzzing in with Harry Potter as my buzz. Is Bree fetching a cup of tea? Uh, yeah, where is I'd Brie? really like a cup of tea right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's Harry. It's Harry. It's definitely Harry, yeah. So that brings the final score. at six for Pat, four for Laurie. And that's all. <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Were you compelled to like chime in or <laughs> to, like just... <laughs> I thought you were disconnected. I don't know. I've actually got some issues concentrating at the moment. So I'm just... Let me just get back in the zone. Okay. Dial in. Dial back in. Laurie, I think you had some... Would you rather, or I hope you have some would you rather for us. Yes. Well, thank you very much for that game. And due to popular with Keith (laughs) and insistent demand from Keith, I shall now cast Revivify on the thoroughly enjoyed by Keith. (laughs) Would you rather segment of our Harry Potter episodes? Let's begin. Please ask any clarifying questions you may have as I proceed. Your answering order will be Patrick, Keith, Bree. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, would you rather be forced to fly a flying car to work every day but have to hide it on penalty of imprisonment, leaving and arriving only in darkness, so lots of early days and late nights, or be forced to catch public transport only during peak hour and always missing the train slash bus you intend to catch by three seconds? I mean, the second one is already my life. Um, (laughs) So so I think I would do that and and just forego the ridiculously long work hours. Keith? Yep, I'm on board with that. Just because of the ridiculously long work hours, it would be pretty cool to have the flying car thing going on. But just like in the movie, it would probably go on too long and I'd get sick of it pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) And break. I remember disliking the game the first time around. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so pre votes for it not to be reinstated. I get really frustrated by missing the bus or the tram or the train by a few seconds. But I would just start walking home. So, yeah, I quite like working too, to be honest. Bree chooses to <laughs> completely defy the constraints of the game. <laughs> So, because you work long days, you would fly the car anyway? That would be all right, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing to have a flying car. I was about to say, if you all went with the public transport just so you didn't have to work as long a days as I determined, I guess during summer, it was very, very long days, I think that's probably like a sign of our age. You're like, oh, no, I really can't be asked working extra hours. (laughs) 
Well, I don't get paid to work extra hours, so, you know. As a kid, you'd be like, I don't care how many hours I have to work, a flying car, yeah! That's true. Yeah, I reckon a flying car would be amazing. Do you have use of that flying car afterwards? I've got to know. No, just to work. You don't? Okay. Well, no. Any kind of commuting vehicle is is only worth the commute. Mm. Okay. Would you rather, with some prior warning so you can prepare an adult diaper... Go on. Have a defecatus spell cast upon you mid-second act. <laughs> this is why I disliked this game the first time around. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> mid-second act of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child mm-hmm. or be barred from ever seeing it. I refuse to answer this. <laughs> oh, look. Pat, you're up first. Uh, I, I would just rather not see it overall. I mean, I don't feel that that's out crazy. Keith? Yeah, I'd definitely be seeing it. But <laughs> the days preceding it, I'd be very carefully controlling my diet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and Bree? Crickets. The only person who has, apart from myself, who has actually seen it, would it be worth missing out on the show or would you just soldier on? Crickets. <laughs> Come on, Bree. Oh, thanks, Bree. Would you rather be an incredibly dim-witted and academically inept wizard, scorned for your buffoonery but capable of minor magic and fully aware of the wizarding world, or a muggle with nothing changed in your life except that you always feel great getting up in the morning? I hate getting up in the morning. It's the worst part of my life in general, so I, I think I might go for that. I don't want to be like a buffoon. Muggle me. Keith? Can you repeat the second part one more time, please? So you're either the pretty crap wizard, but you know everything about the wizarding world, or a muggle, exactly your life as it is now, except that you always feel great getting up in the morning. Yeah, I'm with Pat. I don't want to be Gilderoy Lockhart. (laughs) (laughs) Bree? Yeah, me too. You can create your own magic. Maybe this is a sign of our age at this point, where we're all like, yeah, flying cars, magic, whatever. Like, I just want to get home from work and go to bed and then feel okay when I get up the next day. Yep. (laughs) All right. I think it was the Gilderoy Lockhart comment from Keith that swung me the other way, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather have to kill a friendly house elf with your bare hands once a month for a year... And be paid 50 million Wulongs cash in hand and be gifted a wand which activates your otherwise latent magical ability or serve as the Malfoy's house elf for the rest of your life. Oof. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do for Dobby. It would just not happen, unfortunately. Oh, man. As attractive as you attempt to make it sound. <laughs> Keith? Yeah, this is a tough one. I'm going to pretend I've got the cold heart of a killer and I'm going to go the first option. Yeah, fair enough. No. Keith Lestrange. Brie? There's no way that I could kill something. There's just no possible way. He's quite annoying, Dobby, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be channeling those thoughts. By later episodes or later books and later films, yeah, you certainly have a soft spot for the old Dob stuff. Yeah, even by the end of this one. It's definitely a soft spot, but he's yeah. still annoying. So can your kids be, but, you know... You, oh, of course, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not strangling any kids. 
<laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> you just don't do it. Get on with life, right? <laughs> Can you imagine how bad it would be, though, being the Malfoy's house elf? Yeah. It would suck. But you live in hope of a sock. You do. And you're also not killing other things. Mm. Now, at the risk of alienating a portion of our audience, assume for the sake of a pun that your sex life involves at least one penis. No. Would you rather both arms be rendered boneless during your next Christmas holiday break or be rendered boneless for the next three months starting today? For how long during the break? Either during your next Christmas break, both your arms are boneless. Right, yeah. Or for the next three months, you're uh, boneless. (laughs) Three months is nada. That's fine. I mean, maybe not with your hands tied behind your back per se, but, you know, not too difficult. What about you, Keith? Yeah, this is a tough one. I like it. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going deep on the thinking here. Christmas break's only, what, a week or two? It would just be so frustrating and, like, irritating and it would be an endless, like, pain in the neck and you wouldn't be able to do anything. You wipe yourself, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Like, just your general hygiene would suffer. Yeah. All right. I'll take the three-month break as well. You're probably having a one- or two-week break over the Christmas period anyway if you've got no bones in your arms. Think of how good <laughs> it would be three months and one day in. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Brianna? Yeah, I'm not answering this one. Would you rather be perceived by all to have the boorish, sobbing negativity of Moaning Myrtle or the snide, brattish impudence of Draco Malfoy? Moaning Myrtle. No one wants to be the dick at the party. Probably more likely to be a CEO or something, though, if you're a Draco, whereas you're just the office bore if you're Moaning Myrtle, right? Yeah, but I guess I maybe I'm too worried about the way that people perceive me, but I certainly wouldn't want to be like people think that, that I was an asshole as opposed to just a sad sack. <laughs> so it's only their perception. It's not actually true. Is it? Well, if everybody perceives you to be a certain way. Yeah, perception is reality, blah, blah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to be Draco. I'm Breaking Bad in this one. Keith has a bit of a propensity for Breaking Bad, it seems. Bray? I think I'm the sad sack. Fair enough. As a graduate of Chico Rollybonks, oh, yeah. and having survived the trauma of being chubby and nude for your first year, you've been offered be assigned to a small regional town for the next 20 years where your magic is used primarily to mend fences, debolic bulls, ward off bunyips that tend to leave biological deposits in regional post boxes and cure the less advertised but horrifying symptoms of drop bear chlamydia or live and work in a major city with a moderately successful career but be rendered completely hairless and have Bogan come up with some creative ways to mock you as a... <laughs> I've written something quite rude here. As a bald <laughs> on the train every workday. <laughs> While his scag girlfriend picks scabs from his hair for the whole journey. Oh, dear Lord. And washes himself in a two-litre bottle of Coke. Well and gone represent. Or was it Dapto? <laughs> it was on that train line, uh, for sure. I feel like taking a, an abstaining vote here. Oh, no. Come on. You can go off for 20 years in some dodgy regional town and do fairly rural magic. There's no shame in rural magic. Give me the rural magic. Yep, I'm going rural magic as well for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I'm assuming 
because the second one you're completely bald that in the first one you're not which i would love to be and the second reason <laughs> because yeah the nice quite relaxed country life is appealing Bree, yeah castle maine and barrel immediately spring to mind oh barrel's awesome Mm, rural. That's hardly rural. It's a great pie shop there. <laughs> Gumnut patisserie. Get yourself there. I'm talking about like a five-hick town out in nowhere. Well, then you should have been more specific. Oh, okay. We're going to Barrel. Barrel's like a rich weekend away suburb of Sydney, essentially. With a few sheep. It's delightful. Some rolling <laughs> hills. All right. Well, enjoy your drop bear chlamydia. <laughs> That's the end. That was the last one. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, no, no I really enjoyed that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> I might be speaking on my own there. Uh, let's see how many points go to the Gryffindocks when we're scoring with Keith. Wait. Oh. I want to talk about the movie first. Oh, please do. The movie came out in 2002, which is a year after the first movie hit our screens and four years after the first publishing of the corresponding book, Chamber of Secrets. Something that they introduced in the movie that wasn't present in the second book was the changing nature of the relationships between the Trinity, a bit of foreshadowing of what was to come that wasn't in the book that made it into the movie. At the time the movie was being screenwritten, the first four books had already been released, so they were up to Goblet of Fire, so there was some use of that knowledge to change the character dynamics, particularly those between Ron and Hermione. For the demographic, it was a really long movie, two hours and 41 minutes, not quite three hours of Endgame, but it's getting close. Do you know what? Given the choice between Endgame and watching Chamber of Secrets, I think I'd watch Chamber of Secrets. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I guess we can't probably get into that the reasons for that without being spoilerific, particularly given Pat hasn't yet seen Endgame. Mm. So we'll save that conversation for another time, but I'm keen to pursue that. This book was honoured by the movie. It stayed true to it which is a good thing. And overall, when I watched it again recently, I really enjoyed it. It maintains that same charming and fun disposition from the first movie, given that it shares the same director, but you also start to see those darker themes emerging with the children and the subject matter both maturing. Did any of you guys rewatch the movie recently? I think, Pat, you said you did. I've been rewatching the latter ones mostly. I haven't gone back and watched this one for a little while. It's been the, the work of probably a couple of years, my rewatching. I haven't had a, a deadline like Bree's mum. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so some parts of it, like the car scene I alluded to earlier, they really drag it out in the movie, probably a bit too much and make it a bit too Hollywood. But apart from that, it was good. Shall I move on to our scoring? Let's do it. Before I do... This is pretty darn old, but really, it's essential Harry Potter knowledge. When Tom Riddle was considering which anagram to use, anagram of his name, Tom Marvolo Riddle, for his brand relaunch as the Dark Lord, there were a number that he regretfully passed up. These were reportedly first penned by Dan Abramovich and delightfully illustrated by Katie Rose in 2012. From that list, this is my top four. Number four, Lord Earldom Vomit. <laughs> Number three, Mild Doormat Lover. Number two, Immortal Love Rod. <laughs> and coming in at number one, it's Mr. Tom, a dildo lover. <laughs> Stiff 
competition. <laughs> Very much so. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Good night, Mr. Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll move us on to scoring. Was this one, the immortal love rod himself, Voldemort, let's not waste our breath? Was it two, Gilderoy Lockhart, self-important, blustery, sanctimonious, big noting pile of crap? Was it three, Dobby the house elf, equal parts adorable and annoying? Was it four, Dumbledore, this guy's awesome, despite his habit of putting kids' lives in peril? Or was it five, Forks, pay attention to this bird, it's pretty darn special. It's a four for me. It's not quite a four for me. It's about a three and a half. And it's also a four for me because it's good, but it's not the peak of the series, which might be an unfair yardstick to use, but it's my yardstick. Wow. Yeah. Good on you guys. I think it feels like the magic's worn off with those scores. I'm going to go here with a four and a half, even though it's not on the scale. I like it. Thanks, Keith. No worries. Wands down, children. It's time for us to disrobe and head home on the train. If you're a new listener, you may not have noticed that we've been a bit remiss in releasing and recording episodes, but it was just yesterday that I was staring at my treasures, I mean books, and saw The Weird Stone of Brisingammon by Alan Garner and thought to myself, I should very much like to revisit that book and inflict it upon my fellow hosts in the process. This sounds like another brog. (laughs) I don't think I've read it since late primary or early high school. That confirms it, doesn't it, Pat? Yeah. So next episode, we'll be holding it up to modern scrutiny to determine just how mouldy or sacred a tome it's become. I, for one, welcome the looming abuse and hope you'll join us then. Can I translate that? (laughs) We'll see you in six months. (laughs) (laughs) you know what we'll have to get our special guest uh what was his name that wrote those james bradley yeah james bradley yeah we're gonna have to get james bradley on because he's gonna be the only person (laughs) that has fond memories of this book (laughs) on team laurie it's james bradley (laughs) that's right until then keep the secrets and keep reading It's book two of the Juggernaut series, The Chamber of Secrets. Oh, it's book Secret two. Falafelers. <laughs> it's book two of the Juggernaut series, The Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling. Now, was it Rowling or was it Rowling? The latter. It's Rowling. I think it's Rowling. Just think of Limp Biscuit. Exactly, that's what Pat said last time. It's book two of the Juggernaut series, The Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling. I hope all of this stays in. Rolling. Like rolling down the hill. I said rolling the first time. Or did I say rowling? You said rowling. You said rowling. Mm-hmm. So what did I say just then? Some rolling. kind of hybrid Like a Keith both. rolling. <laughs> so say it again. Say it again. Rolling. Rolling Ooh. with my homies. Now I'm rolling, rolling, rolling. What? It's book two of the Juggernaut series The Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling (laughs) Rowling (laughs) I just give up (laughs) It had been a while since I'd read The 
philosophers, the philosopher's stone, and. If you're a new listener, you may not have noticed. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> this is never a good place to be. <laughs> Keep it together. <laughs> good night, Mr. Tom.